0: Welcome to The Complete Angler, your source of information on the outdoor industry in Central Canada. With over 35 years in the field, host Don Lamont covers topics and issues with industry leaders and influencers to bring you up to speed on what's happening in the outdoor world. And now, here
1: is your host, Don Lamont.
2: Our guests on today's podcast are Dr. Chris Summers and Julie Stewart. Stewart is a Master of Science student at the University of Regina. She's studying the effects of catch and release ice angling on northern pike in southern Saskatchewan. She's working with Dr. Christopher Summers, an applied ecologist who has a special interest in fish. To better address fisheries conservation and management issues in central Canada, Chris started the Saskatchewan Sport Fish Research Group at the University of Regina in 2017. So how did you end up at the University of Regina, Chris? Well, uh, you know, the
0: Golden Horseshoe has the highest population density in Canada, and I wanted to run away from all those people and all that traffic. And so I looked west uh, and I wanted to go somewhere where they had a lot of wildlife and fisheries uh, challenges, uh, somewhere where I felt like my science could really uh, make a difference. And so I ended up coming to the University of Regina for what at that time was a two-year position, a postdoctoral fellowship, it's called almost like an apprenticeship for professors. And uh, I spent two years uh, in Saskatchewan and I fell in love with the place. And uh, when a job opportunity came up in the department of biology, I applied for it and uh, somehow convinced them to take me on on a permanent basis.
2: Well, you have also, um, you've formed a unique research group I'd like you to tell me about that. That's fascinating. It's all fisheries related, is it not?
0: Yeah, so my research program is actually uh, multifaceted. So I study a range of different animals and it's all under this umbrella concept that people and animals interact with each other. And sometimes uh, we get the short end of the stick or sometimes they get the short end of the stick. And I like to um, provide good information to try to get the best balance there. Uh, And so I work on uh, conservation biology, I work on wildlife management, and I work on fisheries conservation and management, all under that sort of general theme. And when you think about it, uh, fishing is really one of the more direct and interesting ways that people interact with animals, right? Uh, So we have the opportunity to catch and harvest fish, we have the opportunity to catch and release fish, and uh, there's a wide variety of species and contexts available there and so that really uh, fascinates me that that interaction and the science that's necessary to make sure we do that right uh to make sure that fisheries are around for future generations to continue enjoying
2: now julie is part of that program she's uh, one of your master's students correct
0: that is correct yeah so uh back in uh, when i first came to saskatchewan actually i was working on um, issues with conflicts involving double-crested cormorants and American white pelicans and coming from Manitoba you're probably well aware of this this kind of, uh, of issue and uh, I started working on fish as a kind of a, a byproduct of that program uh, because of you know people's interest in how sport fish might respond to these these birds being present and as the fish component became bigger and bigger uh, I saw a need for central Canada to have uh, you know a dedicated research program Uh, And a place where people who have questions about fisheries could come and say, you know, we're interested in this problem, but we have nowhere to go to get research done. Can you help us? And so that uh, spawned the Saskatchewan Sport Fish Research Group, which is led by myself and has an ever changing group of graduate students, undergraduate students, uh, staff, volunteers that are involved in,
2: um, you know, the flavor of research for the particular time period. That's really unique. Uh, I'm going to ask Julie a question because we haven't talked to her yet. And how did how did you get involved in this research group, Julie?
1: Yes. So in my undergraduate, which I took at the University of Regina, I took a conservation course with Chris Summers and kind of learning about conservation, the concept behind it. I became super interested in that field. Um, So then I watched a seminar that is also offered through the university. It was all focused on fisheries research. I found it absolutely, extremely interesting and knew that I wanted to do something like that. So I reached out to Chris Summers and talked about my interest in doing a master's. And he had this project available for me to study northern pike. And I took it and I'm absolutely loving it.
2: Well, that's great. Now, you I understand you just finished up the program here with the season closing?
1: Yes, so we just finished the ice season, and my research is fully focused on catch and release of northern pike in the winter. So what we're doing is actually completing standardized field trials using four commonly used hooked styles. So the reason why we chose these four specific hook styles is... Through Chris's Saskatchewan Sportfish Fish Research Group on their Facebook page, we created a survey and asked anglers what type of hooks they like to use when using tip ups to uh, target northern pike. So 295 people actually participated in the survey. So we got a good idea of what type of hooks people like to use. There was an overwhelming response that they love double treble hooks when fishing for northern pike as well as single and triple treble quick strike rakes. And less used was the circle hook, but we decided to use the circle hook just due to its conservation benefit or the idea of conservation behind that hook. So the four hook types that we used for my study were the single, double, triple quick strike rakes, as well as the circle hook.
2: Well, that's great. Now you're going to, you're writing a report for the next issue of Hook Magazine, which the spring issue, we look forward to that. But I got to ask Chris, uh, how did you arrive on using hot dogs for bait? Was that (laughs) your idea? That
0: is a, that's a great question. So um, people use hot dogs for bait and I'd seen this around sort of folklore, if you like. And uh, I tried it once uh, when I was cooking up some sausages uh, on a spring day for uh, fishing with with my kids for pike. And uh, lo and behold, you know, they liked it. And uh, believe it or not, I tried brisket uh, as well. And they like brisket too. It seems to be this uh, almost like smoky flavored uh, meat that they like. And we wanted to give them a choice, right? So sometimes uh, winter pike can be finicky. And so you offer them your, your favorite, uh, dead fish bait and they don't want it, but, uh, you give them a hot dog and man, all of a sudden they're interested. So, uh, this really evolved as, um, you know, from, uh, rumors in the rumor mill and then some testing in the field and, uh, finding out that, Hey, Pike really do like hot dogs.
2: Uh, I found out a lot about your research, including the hot dogs you had West David down to, uh, do a TV shoot with you guys, and uh, he posted something on our our fishing report about the hot dogs, and had a shot of him with a tip up. It was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> that's great stuff. Well, the other thing that's great about hot dogs
0: is that if you can't find a bait shop, uh, they yeah. sell them almost all the time in the fridges at gas stations and stuff. So you can pick up a pack of hot dogs, uh, you know, almost anywhere. Yeah.
2: So Julie, when you uh, when you hook a pike and you land it, you know, they're all tip ups, right? Yes. So you get a pike on the ice and you get the hooks out. What kind of research do you do with that fish?
1: OK, great question. So when we land a fish, we kind of have a specific set of protocol that we follow every single time to ensure that we're collecting the same type of data every time we go out onto the ice. So as soon as we capture a fish, we bring it to a bucket of water, place it in the water, and we time the de-hooking so we also take into consideration the difficulty of the de-hooking as well as note if there are any injuries associated with the hook and the hook placement so then after that after the hook is removed from the fish we take measurements of the length weight and we just see if there's any other types of tumors or anything on the fish as well as we tag the fish as part of our ongoing citizen science project so other anglers, so recreational anglers, may recapture these fish and provide us information on the health status of the recaptured fish.
2: Cool. Now that's not the only tagging program or, that you have, Chris. Now you have, what, six different species that have you been tagging for a long time?
0: That is correct, yeah. So uh, by far our biggest uh, tagging program is for walleye and sauger. Uh, You know, walleye is the king of the freshwater sport fish world in in Canada, so we spend a lot of of our effort uh, tagging walleye and asking about factors that contribute to successful catch and release. And uh, we work a lot with catch and release tournaments, as well as with just recreational angling. And uh, we also tag um, northern pike, yellow perch, uh, burbot, and uh, we have probably a fairly unique program as far as I'm aware. Uh, we work on Lake Cisco. Uh, so Cisco are commonly caught during the ice angling season in Saskatchewan and not much in the summer. And uh, that's predominantly a catch and release fishery. And uh, nobody really studies Cisco. They're one of those species that uh, people don't seem to be all that interested in from a, from a fish population point of view. So, uh, so we tag all six of those species. And uh, the unique thing I think about our data sets is that you know, we've, we've tagged somewhere in the neighborhood of 13,000 fish over the last uh, the previous few years. And almost every single fish in the database has been caught by, by angling. So it's not like a, a standard fisheries program where uh, the majority of fish are gonna be caught in live traps or some kind of monitoring survey. These are all fish that are angled, released, and then we get reports back on when they're potentially caught a second, third, fourth. We've had fish even caught up to five times Wow. uh in this uh tagging program so uh so we've we have to work uh, extra hard to get those numbers because uh you know angling is definitely a less efficient way than netting to to get your your fish but uh my goal has always been to focus this data
2: set around angling particularly how has the public participation been in the reporting of the tagging yeah it has been stellar uh i have been blown away by
0: how uh great anglers have been about reporting information and uh, this is a voluntary program, right? So there's no, uh, there's nothing that says you have to report a tag. Um, in other jurisdictions, like in the United States, they often go with what's called a high reward tag system where you pay anglers, you know, 50 bucks to report their tag return. Mm-hmm. Um, we simply don't have resources for that here. And, uh, but we haven't really needed it because we've had, um, you know, over a thousand tag returns uh, in the last four years uh, coming from anglers just out of interest and curiosity in the program. And we treat it as an exchange of information. So the anglers send me an email saying, you know, I caught this fish and I go to our database and I pull out the information that we have. And I say, that's great. Thanks for the info. Here's what we know about your fish. And uh, everybody learns something that way. And I think uh, it's been a really, really positive uh, experience across the board. So what does the future hold? Well, more of the same. Um, We are uh, hoping to get enough information that we can actually uh, develop some simple indicators for deciding when a fish is good to release. And so um, this sounds like a silly thing to say, right? We don't know as anglers, we put a fish in the water, we watch it swim away and we say, hey, that fish is great, right? Uh, It swam away hard and we feel good about it. But um, it's not always the case that those fish make it and sometimes you have a fish in your hands and you're like geez i don't know this fish is not looking good Mm -hmm. and you kind of coax it and it swims away and you're like i don't feel good about that release i don't know if that fish is going to make it right Um, we've had both of those scenarios where the fish that looked strong died shortly thereafter and the fish that looked terrible was caught again four years later and had grown substantially so uh you know it's not always clear when you're going to have a successful catch and release event and That's really the goal ultimately of the program is to say, okay, we've got all these species and all these different contexts. If it's summer fishing, if it's winter fishing, it's tip-up fishing, it's rod and reel, it's tournament, it's recreational. What are the cues that we can use to decide, you know, this fish is good to go or this fish needs some help or maybe this fish is not going to make it and needs to go in the frying pan rather than be a wasted release effort. Um, That's really my my overarching goal um, with the idea being that catch and release is a key conservation tool and we just have to make sure that we fine tune it as best we can so that um as there's more and more angling pressure um we we don't we don't see a corresponding decrease in fish numbers
2: well the good news uh chris is there's a whole lot of research being done on that in in western canada in manitoba we have a number of programs Uh, eric mullen he's a regional biologist in out of uh, Lactobani, did an article in the last hooked issue on catch release. And, uh, you know, my experience over the years, and it's great that you guys are working, uh, Julie, and you, your team's working with uh, Northern Pike because they're, especially large Northern Pike, I believe uh, are the most susceptible to damage while angling. Uh, when you went to a lot of these northern lodges in the old day, and, and you know, the, there was a vertical hold for the, you know, the big fish picture, and the, all the organs are hanging down, and they got their fingers in the gills, and there was a lot of mortality of pike after release. Um, I, th- I think that's why the information, Julie, that you and, and your team at the University of Regina are doing is absolutely critical to, to survival of larger fish. And uh, that's, it's really great to hear. Yeah, so I, I agree with you, Don. I think that uh, large pike are um,
0: an issue for catch and release for sure. And in both open water and winter. And one of the things that, um, you know, is really quite interesting about the tip-up study that we are doing is that the winter season is one that has only recently begun uh, to be explored by fisheries biologists in this context. And when you think about it, you know, um, how do you handle a really big ornery northern pike that you pull out of a hole in the ice, right? Uh, it's taken uh, some treble hooks in deep. You know They tend to clamp their mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the air temperature is minus 20 and you're fighting with this big beast out on the ice surface, uh, it's tissues are starting to freeze. You know, it's got air exposure. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got to pry its mouth open and maybe uh, take some hooks out in a way that's rougher than you'd like because of the circumstances. And then we're going to try to put this back in the water. Um, You know, the winter season really does present some extra challenges for fish that we just don't understand. Um, And I think the, uh, the set line or the tip up approach is uh, it's a different mode of fishing than typically done for big pike in the summer. And uh, you know, that, that slack line, that ability to run with the bait and potentially swallow it um, is a real factor that
2: uh, we're trying to understand in that research as well. And you know what, it's just not for uh, it's just not for pike. I remember in, in the old days, we'd go up uh, say one of the great trout lakes we have in the Northern part of Manitoba and Saskatchewan. And we set a dead bait for a lake trout on the bottom. And that would be a factor as well. They would swallow it all the way down. And we actually, uh, Chris, stopped fishing that way. I refused to do that because we did have a fairly high mortality rate of those hooked fish. And I know we did because those fish are just not releasable. They're they're bleeding from the gills. And I, I just don't think it's a, a very sustainable way of fishing. Um, I, I know that a lot of the anglers have... Uh, have kind of adapted to how they set their baits with smaller hooks uh, don't let the fish run very long that kind of thing but there is still an issue in that regard i believe right well maybe julie should uh talk a bit about the circle hook then and tell uh, you know what our hope is for uh for
0: that tackle in terms of that winter um, and that very problem you're talking about with swallowing the bait
2: i'm all yeah. ears julie
1: <laughs> So the circle hook definitely had a learning curve that we had to overcome this season. So at first we were following the same protocol with the crick strike rig as we would go to the tip up within 20 seconds and start pulling it up, no set for the circle hook, but we would lose a lot of the fish. It would just pop right out of their mouth. So after speaking with some anglers I have that are advanced anglers, um, we came to the conclusion that we actually had to let the northern pike swallow the bait completely before you start pulling it out and that's just based on the design of the circle hook so you really want to make sure you're using inline zero offset circle hooks for this because since it is being swallowed down it needs to be able to come back out so if there is a slight offset it will deep hook the fish so that perfect inline hook is the best and what you do is you just steady pressure so we'd let it run and then it would stop. The stop would be an indication that it had swallowed the bait and then we would let it run again. On that second run is when we start pulling up the fish and you could kind of feel it coming out and then it would hook the jaw of the fish which is perfect for dehooking. It allows very quick de-hooking times, the fish they haven't they were not bleeding they were not having any type of injuries there was the odd deep hooking that occurred if it was slightly offset or if it was just missed if the hook was misplaced on the fish but other than that there is definitely a conservation benefit to actually letting it swallow the bait so a little bit different than the quick strike rigs with all the trebles
2: well that's a uh, extremely valuable information now when you use a circle hook did you double circle hook like, did you use a trailer as well, like a tandem?
1: Uh, no, we only had one circle hook. Wow. Yeah.
2: So
0: we use a uh, a, si- a size five odd circle hook. Okay. Zero offset is absolutely critical. Okay. So um, if there's even a, a ma- slight manufacturing deviance, which we find happens a lot, actually, um, you know, and the point is not dead on aligned with the shank of the hook. Uh, that's a problem. And so, uh, it, you know, like Julie said, there's a learning curve there. But uh, what I love about the circle hook is that it takes away some of that, uh, you know, Don, you mentioned that, okay, well, well, we'll use smaller hooks or, you know, we won't let the fish run as long or, you know, those are all kind of subjective things that mm-hmm. um, puts uh, a lot of the decision-making in the hands of the angler. If you use a circle hook and it works properly, all that goes away right it's like you can let the kind of kind of let the fish do whatever it wants and uh you know what my big concern with tip-ups is often they're not attended as you know directly as they should so guys are in their tent or in their trailer and they're chatting or whatever and a flag is up and you know you notice it who, who only knows when after it's actually been you know uh, the strike has happened um the circle hook you know you can let the fish take it down deep And you're going to pull it back out again anyway. And it's only designed to kind of come around the corner and hook in the jaw. So um, I love that because it, uh, it, like I said, it takes away some of that subjectivity, some of that decision making that maybe some anglers don't, just don't have the know-how, or maybe they lose that opportunity to make those decisions because they don't notice when a flag
2: goes off. Julie, you're going to have to hit the seminar circuit and, uh, and tell anglers how we need to do that. (laughs) Yes, that'll be part of your master's. (laughs)
0: Well, this was actually, you know, it's funny. Julie was not a a, a, an angler, obviously, before she started, and I think this this was really good because she came in with no biases, no sort of angling folklore in her background, and you know, we gave her this, and she's able to go at it from a completely non-biased point of view and say, okay, how does this stuff work for me? And you know, to confess that, yeah, I struggled a bit with circle hooks at the beginning. Right. And, uh, I think, I think the same will be true for some anglers, right? They're going to miss some fish at the beginning Mm -hmm. because the circle hook is, uh, you know,
2: takes a bit of finesse. So, Mm -hmm. uh, super, super good to have Julie on board. Well, that's, uh, that's really great research. That's, that's invaluable information. I believe. That'll really uh, that if we do it properly and get the information out there to the public that will really increase uh, a catch and release success on tip ups with northern pike. I I believe it, I believe what you, you know what you're telling me. Very right well.
0: Yeah. That's good. We, uh, we don't own a hook company yet, so we got no reason to lie to you. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do want to add one thing to that, Don, which is, um, you know, there's a, an older style of, uh, of tip-up hook for pike that's used frequently. It's called a Swedish hook. Right. You probably, you probably know the one I'm talking about. looks yep. like half of a coat hanger, basically. That's right. And, uh, these are still sold quite widely but uh, pretty well documented in the scientific literature that they have a high mortality rate for pike when they're hooked on those, those Swedish hooks. So um, whenever I, I uh, encounter Swedish hooks, I always, um, in a gentle way, try to have a conversation with anglers about you know, what is the value of a Swedish hook and you know, what is the risk associated with the, the hookup on those. So I just wanted to, to add that that those Swedish hooks are are not a good idea if you're planning to release fish from uh, from tip up fishing.
2: Okay, before I let you guys go, I'm going to ask Julie, uh, when w- when do you graduate?
1: Um, So I'm looking to graduate in August 2023. So I'm going to have one more uh, I season to conduct some more research a little bit more on selecting bait so i'll be watching using gopro cameras. The fish as they approach different size bait on different size hooks so that will be next season and just seeing how. Uh, if there is a different size range that approaches them how they act when they approach the bait and if there's any differences at all that appear when using different hook sizes and bait sizes.
2: Well, I guess uh, we're booking the end for next April then.
1: <laughs>
2: you should tell Don what an expert angler you are now, Julie. How many fish did you catch on tip ups this season?
1: Hmm, I definitely caught more fish than Chris. But...
2: <laughs> Ouch. Ouch.
1: But my study this year, we caught 126 pike. And last year, when they did a pilot of my project, they caught 32. So we have a total of 158.
2: Well, that's, uh, that, that's a good data set, I would, I would think, right, Chris? Oh yeah, that's great, yeah. And yeah. if we, uh, we'll, we'll add to it next year, probably uh, add another hundred fish to it. And,
0: you know, sample size is important because the more fish you study, the better your uh, your data reflect reality. And also uh, in our case, you know, the fish range and size, right, and I think there's an important consideration for larger fish, like we were talking about. Mm-hmm. So we wanna make sure we get a good size range representation um, you know, season may be important, right? Uh, the way that fish feed during the deep winter and, you know, the aggression uh, that they show in terms of striking may affect how often they get deep hooked. So the season is important. So there's a lot of variables there to consider. And uh, if you want to do it right, you got to have lots
2: of fish. Well, that's great. Uh, I really appreciate appreciate both of you coming on the show and the tremendous work that you're doing on research for not only pike, but all those other different species of fish in, in Saskatchewan. Uh, I think the province is pretty blessed to have you, Chris, to be honest.
0: Well, thank you very much. I uh, I appreciate that. And uh, you are you have a standing invitation to come out and help us collect data anytime
2: you happen to be passing through this way. Okay, sounds good. And I'm going to have both of you back on the show again. I, I really appreciate this. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you.
0: Thanks for tuning in. Visit hookedmagazine.com to subscribe to The Complete Angler and never miss an episode.